COVID was actually a really good thing from a, from a, um, I would say it from a diligence perspective, if you're looking to partner with someone, because it got rid of a lot of the bad actors. It got rid of a lot of the bloated, debt-laden balance sheets. So now anyone who got through that is under a higher level of scrutiny from their lender and, and has a clear path for continued growth. So given those factors, I feel really good about the future of OSOs. This, this, this is the Orthopreneur Show with Glenn Krieger, talking about the things you never learned in school, like marketing, management, and leadership. Hello there, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Orthopreneur's Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Glenn Krieger, and today with me is Kevin Cumbus from, uh, well, president, not just from, He's a president of Tusk Partners. Welcome, Kevin. Glenn, thanks so much. It's great to be here. You know, um, for those out there who don't know who you are, I'm going to let you give a little background information in just a moment. But one of the hot topics in orthodontics and in dentistry and medicine and the world, if you will, right now, are acquisitions, right? If you if you sit down at a bar with a buddy who brings three or four or five friends, before you get to the end of the table, they might be an attorney, a veterinarian, a dentist, a physician. Whatever it might be, oh, I partnered with private equity last year, or my my group partnered with private equity. So this is something that's become very common in our in our world, and uh, your company uh, is smack dab in the middle of it when it focuses on dentists and specialists and what have you. And so first, um, tell us a little bit about who you are, and then follow that up a little bit with how you ended up getting to where you are now. Yeah, sure, Glenn. Uh, the the origin story is, is is very relevant actually because my father is a pediatric dentist so I've been around dentists my entire life uh, I, I wanted to become a dentist the the chemistry department where I went to school told me no way you are not equipped we will pass you if you promise to never come back so I took my D minus and went over to the uh, econ the econ department and graduated in econ finance and accounting. Uh, but after that, I did 10 years of finance and investment banking. So really learned about big companies, uh, private equity, and how Wall Street worked. Uh, left that uh, to really get, get more focused on smaller businesses. It's a funny story. I was talking with my father when I was toiling away at the investment bank working 90, 100-hour weeks. And I'm like, Dad, I, I don't like uh, this. I, I like the work, but I, I don't have anybody here that I want to be like. They don't have pictures of their kids up. They don't talk about their wives or their kids. They, they don't coach Little League. They, it's, they're all in it for the money. And I just, I, I, this isn't me. It's not who I am. And he goes, lucky enough, I'm selling my dental practice. There's a broker helping me. You, you might be good at this type of work because you know what a dentist is like. You understand what it's like to be an entrepreneur. Um, maybe you want to do this world. So within, I think, 60 days, I had left this high-paying job, kind of the golden ring that everybody wants to hold on to. Um, and and started brokering dental practices. And that was my first foray into the dental economy about 17 years ago. It was great to get to work with dentists and specialists across the nation, helping them uh, monetize and sell their life's work be, because these are emotional transactions. Yeah, there's, there's an income statement and a balance sheet. Um, in most cases back then, it was a dentist selling to an, another dentist and there was a lot of focus on the legacy of the practice and making sure we chose the right partner. Um, and, and then most starkly, especially with this conversation, valuations were, were pretty paltry. 
I mean, valuations were 70 to 80% of collections. Right. And, you know, and coming from Wall Street, I'm seeing this, I'm seeing all the cash flow going, this makes no sense. I see EBITDA margins of, of 20, 30, 40%. This is before EBITDA was a common word that we'd use that I knew from, from my investment banking days. And my boss at the time said, hey, look, you kind of got to throw that stuff out the window because what really you're seeing is an ability to pay analysis, meaning an individual dentist or orthodontist can only get 70 to 80% of a practice revenue from a bank to do the acquisition. So it's like, boom, light bulb goes off. I'm like, wait a minute, these things are severely undervalued because they're limited in value by the buyer pool. Well, you know, in walks Heartland Dental Care, and they start paying 100% of collections, which felt like oh, everybody <laughs> couldn't believe it to get 20, 30% more. And, uh, you know, I, I, you kind of know what's going on when you've been at Wall Street long enough. You're like, oh, they're paying five times EBITDA. Uh, they're likely going to trade at 12 times EBITDA. They're getting seven turns on the arbitrage. Uh, this is a pretty nifty business model. So once I saw that model for the first time, I said, enough with this brokerage stuff. I got to get involved in the DSO world, left to go work for uh, the fifth largest DSO at the time, Affordable Dentures. I was there in operations and business development, got to see value creation at the C-suite, how they thought about acquisitions, how they scored acquisitions, how they thought about operations integration. And then, Glenn, I was foolish enough to think I could do this by myself, on my own, and build and scale my own group. This was the critical error. This this is the error in my in my life when I said, if they can do it, I can do it. And I and I built a dental practice from scratch. Um, I do not recommend doing this, especially if you don't have those three magic initials behind your name that allow you to actually do clinical care. Yep. Um, I, I will I will tell you, I survived that business experience. Um, and, and ultimately sold it to my associate. So it kind of all of that history of finance, investment banking, dental valuation exposure, exposure to the DSO world, all of that led me to create Tusk Partners. Um, right. Ultimately, you know, we what I saw was um, there was uh, information um, asymmetry in the market where, where the buyers, the private equity backed groups had a wealth of information. And the individual orthodontist or the orthodontic group did not have that information. And when you didn't have that information, you were selling your business or your group for a, for a value that you thought, and it was well above anything you could have ever gotten from another orthodontist, but you but doctors and groups were leaving money on the table. I mean, it was gross how much money was being left on the table. And I said, we, I got to create a solution to this. So built Tusk Partners uh, to really help this help orthodontist, all specialists and dentists maximize the value of their life's work. And, and for us, it's not just about dollars. Look, dollars are super important, uh, but this these are uh, financial transactions, um, operational transactions, because in many cases, it, it, it requires the doctor to work post-sale in the business that he or she built. And, and then... Um, Thirdly, and I would say most importantly, it's emotional, um, and, and that that's really the part that I, that I love the most uh, because it's really getting getting the client comfortable with what's ahead, and, and do they can they really envision a world in which they are working for someone and with someone in the business that they build, uh, and that's a 
That's a big, that's a big difference. It's not retirement. It, it's it's a smoother glide plane towards version 2.0 of whoever you're going to be, which and there's comfort there. Uh, but but it is it is different than tossing a doctor the keys and walking away and cranking up the boat and riding off into the sunset. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I just want to go through a couple of numbers you shared with me in 2021. Uh, about 70% of the the work you did was with specialists, yep. about 30% was with GPs. And overall, of all of your business, about 50% was orthodontic, which is a large part of the people who are going to be listening today. Now, you you went through a lot in that first bit. Like you cover, I have like eight questions to ask you just from that alone. So I'm going to go a little bit through these, a little bit rapid fire, if you will. Sure. So let's start by explaining to everybody out there. You know, we know about OSOs. We know about DSOs. Can you just give a quick um, explanation of the lexicon of what we're dealing with here? What are some of the words uh, that they should know about in terms of OSO specifically to the organizations themselves? We'll get into EBITDA in another minute or two from now. Okay, well, let's just start with the the legal definition real quickly. So, so a, a let's let's just use OSO. It is a legal construct that allows non-orthodontists to own cash flows from orthodontic practices. That's all it is. Um, you can build a group orthodontic practice without the, the that legal piece of paper so long as you are an orthodontist. So that, that's all it is. It is, a, it is a legal construct to allow cash flows to go from the practice to a non-orthodontist. But inside of these OSOs, what, what I want people to be thinking about and knowing is that they are all different, every one of them. Um, they have different leadership. They have different strategies for growth. Um, they have different deal structures that they put forth in all of their transactions. And they all have different exit horizons because they are all supported by, uh, by unique and different private equity groups. So the way these businesses work is a private equity group, which is simply simply a company that has collected a private pool of capital from accredited investors, says we're going to make an investment in a privately held business and grow it to a point where our investors, when we exit, will get somewhere around 20% per year compounded annually. That's the goal. Uh, these are not folks who are looking to hold a business any longer than they have to. Right. They're not being hogs about this. They're trying to be the pigs and not get slaughtered. They want to get in, they want to get out, and they want to enjoy their return. So, knowing that, it's important to understand who the leadership is, how long they've been there as well. Uh, because at the end of the day, this there is capitalism at play, but the leadership inside these businesses are the ones who are the stewards of the culture and will be the ones who hope who hopefully and very likely will survive transaction after transaction after transaction and be the ones that are the the, the beacon, uh, the North Star for this business on a go-forward basis. And, and Kevin, as you're talking about this, I, again, I want to go back again a little bit to the original yeah. question. What is the difference between an OSO, a DSO, oh. an ISO? Just people out there don't understand a lot of the acronyms that are being thrown around. So not I appreciate the business school explanation of what an OSO is. That's sure. awesome. But let's go into what, real quickly. What are the different types of organizations? I've heard people make what a few years ago. I knew of OSOs and DSOs. Now I'm hearing so many acronyms being used as if people in 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 sales, you need a unique selling proposition, right, right? Right. So I need to name my mechanism. So if I'm not just doing braces, I do smile design. 
right? And is it really different? Perhaps it is, perhaps it isn't. But I'm hearing a lot of acronyms coming out for a lot of things. And I don't think they're as different as the people doing it want you to think they are. Uh, Glenn, you, you nailed it. They are all exactly the same. They all have the same legal construct. What are, what are the ones you know? Like what are yeah, all so the let's let's know? take some up, right? So there's there's a DSO, there's a D- dental service organization, DPM, dental practice management. There is OSO, oral surgery. Uh, it's uh, yeah. So there's orthodontic service organization. There's a uh, IDSO, which is an invisible DSO, right? Right. Which which just means, I guess, they don't change the name of your firm. Uh, Then there are uh, DPOs, dental practice organizations. It's just on and on and on. It's a litany of them. And in what you're seeing right now is is people come up and create new ones. I saw Lightwave Dental, a group out of Virginia, uh, just just rebranded theirs as uh, we are a educational support system. Like, okay, whatever. You're Legally, you still have the cash flows. That's all that really matters. Yeah. So it's orthopreneurs to, is technically an ESS then. And education oh, really? support. Well, orthopreneurs support education. Yeah. So I'm, <laughs> I'm going to yeah. give myself a name like that. Orthopreneurs is now an ESS, an educational support system. Yeah, look, they're, they're all legally the same, just branded differently with the hopes of landing more softly, I'm sure, on the, on the ears of, right. of their potential partners. Right. I hate OSOs. Well, that's good because we're not an OSO. <laughs> that's we're right. a, we're yeah. an XPDBDSO. Um, yeah. So let's go now into EBITDA because that was something you spoke about as well. Um, sure. You know, it's something you learn in business school probably day one, but for most orthodontists, they don't, they don't quite understand the idea. And again, if you give a really short explanation of what is EBITDA, and this is a question I hear, you know, unlike you, I'm not a broker. I don't uh, sell practices. I don't uh, typically bring anybody together. You know, I, I'll introduce people to others, right, yeah. in that respect. But um, I'm not a broker. And as a result, I get a lot of questions from people who aren't sure. And they always ask about, you know, what is EBITDA? And by the way, and you might laugh at this, why does the OSO or the DSO find that my EBITDA is so different than what my CPA said it was? Yeah. And I've never, maybe you'll disagree, I've never once ever seen a CPA come to EBITDA the same as the OSO's DSO. Like they're always, the CPA seems to be looking at it from a tax perspective, and the OSO seems to be looking at it as a cash flow perspective. And I don't know if that's accurate or not, but if you can explain what EBITDA is and then address yeah. why I shouldn't necessarily trust my CPA to determine my EBITDA. Perfect. Uh, let's start with the definition of EBITDA. It's earnings, net income, before interest, interest on your debt, taxes, which, which is kind of irrelevant for dentistry because you, it's it's more taxes on goods sold, uh, depreciation of fixed assets, and amortization of goodwill. And Glenn, all it is is a proxy for operating free cash flow. So if I were to buy your orthodontic practice, and remove all the personal one-time and non-operating expenses, all the benefits of small ownership, small business ownership, the car you run through it, your wife that does may or may not work in the practice, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And then add back the interest appreciation and amortization. And then most importantly, pay you a market wage for the work that you do inside the business. Whatever's left over, that's really EBITDA, right? That's it. It's the cash flow. And why is it so important? Because me as an investor, that's the cash flow that I should expect to receive next year after I bought your business. It's it's the best indicator we have for future free cash flow. Now, not everybody calculates this the same. 
I think CPAs get a little hung up and they forget to make the doctor wage adjustment, that owner wage adjustment. So the CPA's EBITDA uh, is exclusive of that the, the removal of doctor wage adjustment. Um, that said, it, when we when we work with a group, we we go through all the numbers, we dig through the general ledgers, we we look at every vendor report and and get an adjusted EBITDA that is down to the penny. And we take that that EBITDA to market. Um, every buyer is going to have a different lens through which they view your EBITDA. Right. And this is most uh, seen in orthodontics because for all the OSOs that you know, they none of them pay the same. Some want to pay twenty percent of collections. Some want to pay a flat salary with no increase for cost of living adjustments. Someone, I mean, it, it is forever changing. And why that's really important is the more you're paid post-sale, the less EBITDA there is in the business on which for the, the buyer to apply a multiple. So can you, you know, repeat, can you repeat that again? Because that's yeah, arguably one of the most misunderstood important components to any doctor who's looking to partner is exactly what you just said, right? Because yeah. they'll get into a negotiation and then they'll say, but can't you just raise my salary $20,000 a year and I keep the same equity I got or the same whatever I'm getting? And I'll sit there and have to explain to them, that's not, you don't understand. This is a giant seesaw. Whatever you take off here has to be added over here. It doesn't that's work exactly that right. So if you can yeah, yeah. that one more time so people hear that again. Sure. So re- remember the calculate how we calculated EBITDA, right? It, it includes a reduction for what you want to be paid after you're a partner with the OSO. So let's just let's just take an example where it's a million dollar collection practice and there's one orthodontist doing all the work. Um, it, it, there's a difference in compensation. So the OSO one pays 20% of collections. Okay, so that's $200,000. And OSO number two pays $150,000 salary. There's a delta there of $50,000 it falls to the bottom and creates or is additive to EBITDA. Now you have to decide what's more important to you, the ongoing cash flow from your compensation or the cash at close once the deal closes, so long as the multiples are the same, right? So we, we work with clients like, we, you need to help us know, doctor, are you financially independent? Are you set for life already? Are you already, are you already at a point where this is the victory lap on your retirement, or is this the linchpin to your retirement? Because that helps inform us on the decision-making process. And two, do you need income in the years to come to help offset your living expenses? Because if someone's financially independent and has enough money to live off of, let's maximize the value of the practice. Let's pay the doctor as little as possible. Put that money into the market. Start letting the power of compounding interest get to work. So, so they can have more money than they ever thought they would 20, 30 years from now. But younger doctors that are going through this process are much more sensitive to how much they're going to be making the year after the close and the yep. year after that. Right. So you, it's, I hear it, it all is, the time. Oh, I we do it. too. I, people, people say, and, and again, I apologize for interrupting because you hit a very important point. I wanted to just ask real quick. One of the biggest hangups I hear from doctors who built two, three, $4 million businesses is that. Man, I couldn't live on $350,000 a year when this is over. And I'm like, right. but you just got $10 million up front. Yeah. Like, like, and, and, you know, if it, this is a conversation that if you and I had, you know, sat at a coffee shop 
and uh, decided we want to talk. I have no doubt you and I could talk on this for the for the next three hours about, in many cases, the short sightedness of some very, very, very bright people in sure. understanding the whole model. Because the other part that comes into all of this, and please, again, you're the expert here, so I want you to bounce this off of you. If I give you $10 million of private equity money up front, right? I, I'm just using numbers. Just cash. Yeah. I love I love having these conversations with people like you, Kevin, because you're going to call out my BS if I'm completely wrong. All right. And I want you to. Sure. But here, but when I have a young doctor or an older doctor come to me and say, Glenn, I know you've been looking at OSOs for years. I know you joined an OSO. I'm really interested in this model, but I can't live on $350,000 a year. And, I, and it, this doesn't make sense. There's no way I'm going to do it. It's a sucker's bet. And I said, OK, you've got, let's make it easy, a $2 million practice. Let's call it $3 million because the EBIT is a million dollars. Okay, right? good. It's not like you would agree a $3 million practice with a, with a doctor. EBIT is probably one, one to one, three, typically in an ortho price, yeah. somewhere in that range. Absolutely. Let's just say it's a million dollars. Right. Simple. And you're going to get a seven X multiple on your practice, which we'll get into a little bit later. Yeah. Right. So you're going to get $7 million and it's important to state total deal value of right. $7 million. Okay. That's not what you're getting. Plus a bunch of other stuff. Let's call the whole deal value $7 million, all right? We're going to give you a million dollars in equity. We're not going to get into what kind of equity right now. We're just going to call right. it equity. And we're going to give you $6 million in, quote unquote, cash. Now, and we're going to pay you a $300,000 a year salary for the next five years of your contract. I'm just making up numbers, okay? Right, right. I'm with you. That sounds familiar, right? This is not a crazy deal by any stretch of the imagination. Correct. No, no, it, it is very common. This is sounding very familiar. That's why I said it, because it's very, very common. So now you got $6 million cash. And this is the point I make to, to doctors all day long that they just don't seem to understand. If I give you $6 million in cash right now, while I am not a tax professional, that is long-term capital gains you are getting. Because you are you are unless you owned your practice for less than a year, I would suspect, but you're you're trading the value of equity in your practice for the value of equity in the, in the private equity for your, for your private equity part, and you're getting your money for your investment of your practice for these years. So your $6 million is taxed at what I think is about 20% give or take right now. Yeah, tw 24 to 25. Right. It depends on the allocation of the purchase price, but it's and, a hell of a lot less than 36. Yeah, and the state you're in also, there could be things involved. And that's why I said I'm not a tax professional. But you're taking $6 million and you're saving on average anywhere from 10 to 13% in taxes because when you earn that money, well, I'm going to keep it. I'm going to earn the equal of $6 million over the next of take home over the next four, five, six years. You're paying an additional 13%, give or take 12% on that money every right. single year. So by doing it up front over the next five right. years, You've saved yourself probably another two, three, four million dollars on that six million dollars in in taxes because of the compound interest rate to the money, and that's the part that doctors don't seem to understand: is taking the money up front a allows you tax benefits that any tax expert will talk to you about, and b if you're smart with it and pull money out to live off of that money is cheaper than the money you would live off of if you increase your salary post tax. Am I? Am I making this completely up, Kevin, or does this make perfect sense? Uh, not only is it 100% accurate, it's a conversation we have here. Uh, we, we certainly have it weekly. We don't have it daily, but we have it weekly. And, and, I, and, I, and I think the challenge is 
you know, the, the business of, of dentistry and orthodontics is, is remarkable, right? If you, if you want more money, what do you do? You just go to show up at the office and, 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 you know, seat more braces. You, you turn just pull on, more turn teeth. Turn the faucet on. Turn That's the right. faucet on, make That's more right. money. And what a, what a profession. You use your hands and you use some inputs and money is created. And, and, and you can always make more if you work more. And it's the harder you work, the more you make in most cases. And it's and this is what has been ingrained in our clients over time. And the thought of really giving that up and exchanging it, the, the entrepreneurial profit from that for one lump sum is hard to think about because you're, you're trading cash flows. Yeah for a lump sum of cash that's going to be managed, hopefully by a professional, right. and you can live off of the interest and the dividends from the portfolio forever. I, do you, I was doing just do a you, little- Do you hear that a lot, by the way? Do you hear a lot of doctors oh, yeah. say to you, say, you know, I just can't live off, you know, I can't live off $350,000 a year. My, my, yeah. and, 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 what, and that, what's your response? What you just said to them? I say, Glenn, the first thing I say is let's let's make sure we understand the personal balance sheet. Like, and I say, have you spoken to a you know, financial advisor first? Because we, we if, if they haven't, we don't want to sell their business, right? The last thing I want to do is sell sell somebody's business for seven million dollars and they've got four million dollars worth of debt. They've got two homes that are underwater, and all of a sudden the proceeds are going to pay off all the debt, and they and they're stuck making three hundred thousand dollars a year. That that's a problem. So we don't want to do that. Right. The financial advisor can really help there and help them see uh, the, how those dollars help them break free of the of really that gravitational pull of their spending. The spending is real, and three hundred thousand dollars isn't meant to 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 like cover all of your monthly or your annual right. expenses because you have additional money coming in from the money you just made. Right. And it is, you, and and you can, as I tell dentists and and orthodontists, if you get six million dollars. Right. If you've got a three million dollar practice running at 50 percent overhead and you're taking on one point five million a year, give or take pre-tax, take the your post-tax dollars. Maybe it's eight hundred thousand a year. I'm just making up a number. Yeah. And you're making and you're making three hundred a year. Take five years worth of five hundred thousand out of your six million dollars. Don't pull it out. Let it keep working in a safe investment. Now you have three and a half million dollars working for you, you know, or after taxes, you you understand where I'm going. But I would say take out the money you need to support your lifestyle into another account so that, sure. you know what, you are making 800000 a year. But the truth is that 500000 I pulled out, you don't have to pull out five hundred. It's It's cheaper money. The, the whole thing, we, like I said, we can sit there for days you yeah. talking about this. But but again, I, I just want to ask a couple of more questions, if you don't mind, because we only have so much time and you're such a wealth of information, if you don't mind. And by the way, Two things I wanted to add to what you mentioned. One, he talked about personal debt. Professional debt is going to play a huge role too. Because if your practice owes a million dollars because you bought someone's practice, because people are hearing this right now, Kevin, and they're like, I got a $3 million a year practice. Just bought right. it two years ago. I got $2 million in debt, but that doesn't matter. Remember, once you, you get your money, you must pay off your professional debt because you no longer own the practice. So if you get $6 million and you owe a million, that's or two million on your practice. That's a very different kind of thing than if you're debt free on your practice. So always remember your your debt, your professional debt. Oh, I have an iCat I bought. That's one hundred fifty thousand dollars. You've got to pay that off when you sell. 
So yeah, so, the, the banks get paid first in every one of these transactions. Exactly. So people people always need to remember that and understand that component of it. The question I wanted to ask you, you talked about EBITDA, and you threw something in there really fast, way earlier, that I wanted to circle back to. You know, sure. you get you get a 7x multiple, there's a 12, 12x transactional multiple at the enterprise level. You know, like we skip through that really, really fast. But I think that is essential for people to understand how private equity transactions occur, right? And if you yeah. can take a minute or two and explain, you, when you join an OSO, DSO, IDSO, XPL, or DOSHSO, um, when you do that and you get equity, you're getting equity in the greater company. You know, the, if, if I join Smile Doctors, which I happen to be a member of, my equity is in Smile Doctors, right? Sure. And so- you can explain to people transactionally what occurs every three to five years. Absolutely. Why it occurs. And most importantly, how the enterprise level or the large transaction multiple trickles down and how it affects the doctor's multiple. Because just because a company goes 15X, and there are exceptions, I'm not going to mention names that do that. But just because they make 15X doesn't mean you make 15X. Uh, it works differently. So if you can explain that, I'd appreciate it. Yeah, sure thing. So it's a great question. It's often misunderstood because there's so many variables attached to it. Uh, first thing that is, is critical to know through this conversation is when private equity makes an investment inside of, of any business, be it dentistry, hardware, manufacturing, you name it, they have about a 60-month plan, five years, where they want to get in, grow the business, and get out. That's the plan. If they can hit their return sooner, they're going to sell sooner. If it takes a little longer, they'll hold on. But they're all targeting a return that they hope they can hit in 60 months. All right. Now, armed with that knowledge, let's talk about the equity. Every DSO does this differently, by the way. So what Smile Doctors does is not the same as my orthos. It's not the same as Southern Ortho Partners. They all do it differently. Um, so when you uh, when you sell your uh, business for $7 million and you roll a million dollars of equity into sorry, a million dollars into equity, first question you need to ask is equity in what? Is it equity right. in the business that you sold, commonly referred to as JV equity or joint venture equity? Um, and if you did, what are the liquidation rights? What are the distribution rights? What are the cash flow expectations that come along with it? Because joint venture equity might not become monetized when that private equity company that owns that OSO sells their reaches their uh, five years and sells their sells their investment. Uh, if you rolled into Holdco or Topco like you did, Glenn, uh, there's an expectation that you and all share shareholders have that there's going to be an opportunity for liquidity when the private equity company sells. Now that's important, an opportunity for liquidity. And not every DSO OSO does this the same. Um, sometimes there are restrictions around how long you have to hold your equity before you can redeem it. Right. Sometimes there are restrictions on what percentage of your equity you can redeem. And, and actually, that's not set by the current leadership or the current private equity group. It is, it is a part of the negotiation when the private equity group is actually selling the OSO. Um, so when you're asked to roll equity, you need to ask two questions. One, where does the equity live? And two, what are the rights, privileges, and obligations that come along with this? What are the what are the what should I expect from it? And then whatever they tell you, knock it down by about 20 to 40%. 
uh, because look, they're in sales and I, and I get it and their expectations that come along with it and, and the words they use matter uh, because what you may hear them say is our historical return on rolled equity is 4.25 times. That sounds really good. Like if I rolled equity into your business today, Glenn, and you're selling tomorrow, I, I might hear and expect I get 4.25 times. But what they're saying is people who invest with us on the ground floor at the very beginning, who take on all the risk we take on, on average, they get 4.25 times return on invested equity. Right. So and it, by it, the way, it, and I, I want to pause you there for just a second because yeah. I, think, I think there's a lot of, I want to be very delicate with what I say here and very careful. I think there's a lot of not so great operators out there when it comes to this. I think when they talk about multiples, you know, I heard um, people telling me when I was going through the process, oh, we're going to get you 6X. We're going to get you 8X. We're going to get 10X. We're going to- On, on your equity? We're going to get, we're going to get, we're, when, when, when we turn, when we uh, turn at 6X, when we turn at 5X, when we turn at 7X, which again, the two sides of it are number one, when who turns at 6X? Not me. Yeah. And, and then again, the second part that was very, took me a while to understand in this was the, and by the way, thank you to the American economy for changing that narrative because that narrative has now changed a great deal. But yeah. but the other part of it that I didn't understand that was explained to me later and now made perfect sense was, imagine that the OSO you were joining was a stock, just a simple That's, stock. And yeah. you could have bought it at $10. Now it's valued at $70. But don't worry, it's Microsoft. It's going to be worth $250 or something. Because I see people who said, oh, I wanted to join, using the example of Smile Doctors. You know, Glenn, I really wanted to join Smile Doctors, but they just had a turn. And there's no sense in me joining because they just had their turn. Why would I want to join? Like, they're not going to, like, they're not going to have another turn soon. And people have this idea that, like, if you're in before the turn, you get that multiple. If no, you're in after yeah. the turn, you got to wait five. And they don't understand it's like a stock, yep. correct? That's correct. And the time value of money matters when you buy that stock, right? So we all wish we would have bought Amazon seven years ago and all of us look at it now and go, it's too high. That's a, it's a perfect way to think about it. But Glenn, not everyone values their stock that way. Um, so, so, so Smile Doctors is a great example where their stock is marked to market every time they do a transaction. So right. what might've been $11 a share at the mid midpoint of last year is now $12 a share today. And they keep marking it to market based on, based on a methodology that they've agreed to internally. And that's good for the folks who got in sooner because they're seeing their share price go up. And right. I believe that's the equitable, fair way to do it because you're rewarding those who got involved with Smile Doctors sooner because they took on more risk. Right. It doesn't mean you can't make money by getting in today. It just means those who got in earlier took on more risk and in turn will, will receive more upside so long as the value of the stock, keep, stock keeps climbing. Right. If you bought Amazon when it first came out, right, which, by the way, lost money for many, 
many years. Right, right, right. I, it was, was it wasn't a, it wasn't a net income play. No, I was living in Seattle back in the late '90s, watching everybody complain about Amazon couldn't make a penny. But my point is, if you got in early, you were later rewarded for the risk you took of going in early. Once yep. it became a multi-billion-dollar company, you still made money just at a slower rate, but you continued to make money. And some would argue if you invested in Amazon seven years ago, you made far less than if you invested 15. But if you invested in it seven years ago, your portfolio is looking really solid today. And that's where sure. that's where I think the whole, you know, it doesn't matter when you get on the train, in my opinion, it's the value of when you get on the train. It's the train you get on. Right. Amen. It doesn't, right. If, well you're, if, yep. if you're hitched to a good train, it's going up. But if you're hitched to and, and that's what I try to explain and tell me if this is wrong. When people say to me, oh, I'm thinking and, and this is a question, too, for you, Kevin. You know, a lot of doctors will come to me because, again, I, I like to move this discussion along because I think it's important. And they'll say, hey, Glenn, I know you're part of Smile Doctors. And I spoke to MB2, SOP, uh, Chorus, my orthos. I mean, I could name a series of them. Of course. But but there's a bunch of local people. I'm sure you hear this all the time. There's a bunch of local people who have started an, an OSO near me or a multi-specialty group, which seems to be popping up on every corner these days and say, you know what? I was looking at Smile Doctors and, and SOP and my orthos and MB2 and Chorus and whomever and ortho partners. And I was looking at all of those. Um, but I'm thinking I'm going to go with this really small group because they said I'll be the first or the third orthodontist they brought on. And I, I, my question to them is, why are you risking all of what you've got when you get one shot at this to do this one time with a company that has no proven track record because you're chasing your ch like it's like buying a penny stock in my opinion. Yeah, agree. Or am I completely off base on no, this? People uh, they they hear about round floor equity. That's a term we hear a lot when people call up there. Like, hey, we, we want to do a deal, but I want to work with the DSO. I want to get in on the ground floor so I have the, the highest upside when they exit. And I asked him, I said, do you love risk? Do, do you a skydiver? Do you do you love risk? Because if you do, we can find a loose affiliation of doctors who believe they have an idea because they were at a bar recently right. and they wrote on the back of a, of a cocktail napkin and they've got an uncle who's got some money and they're going to pull this whole thing together. And the likelihood of success is exceedingly low. But if they hit it, you're right. You, you will do wonderfully. It's yeah. kind of like vent, like venture capital, right? I, it, but venture capital is a little different because they spread around a bunch that's, of different investments. It's different because you can invest in 10 that, companies, that's nine right. fail, one yep. hits, you're off to the races. You, that's right. You're fine. And, you get and by one the way, practice. They, they, they invest in 101 hits and they're good. But you have one asset. You get one chance to sell this thing. One, one chance. So you better choose the right train out of the station. And if and if you do that, as we've seen, oh, we've been doing this for 15 years now. If, if you choose the right one, the value will show up. And uh, when, I, when folk, go ahead, just no, one more please, thing to add. When, when folks sign on and we're talking with them, we ask them, do you, do you want to invest in a more risky asset class equity slug with a higher return? Or are you someone who would prefer to get their money back as soon as possible at, at a more reasonable return, because it matters. It, that, that dictates who we will bring the deal to. It's, I mean, that's how different these balance sheets are and these companies are.
Oh yeah. And, and again, I always tell people the story that when my, um, I have a first cousin, good friend of mine, I grew up with him who runs a big private equity firm overseas. And so when I went through this, I had him make the phone calls and talk to the equity companies because he could speak their language in a way. He was asking questions. I had no idea what he was even asking. And, and I used his counsel, but not everybody has a first cousin who runs a private equity firm who can do that. And that's where you come in. Um, but but again, I, I, I want to be respectful of the delicate position you are in being on a public podcast because I don't want you uh, burning any bridges. I'll burn my bridges before I let you burn yours. And so sure. I'm going to ask a question that hopefully takes off some of the burden on you, but can elicit a good answer. You talked about skydiving. Are you a risk taker? I personally see joining a, a name of a, a joining an OSO or DSO whose name you've never heard of before. And you've been looking a little bit um, and, you know, oh, yeah, they're younger. They're brand new, especially in this economic environment to me is like a it's like parachuting into a shark tank. Right. Like <laughs> you're, you must really, you know, you got a spear gun, so you're safe. Yeah, you're sure. Parachuting. You're going to parachute into a shark tank uh, on a motorcycle over flames. But I, there's gold at the bottom, Glenn. There is there's gold, gold at the, the bottom. bottom. Well, there's one shark that swallowed the gold. And if you can shoot him with a spear gun, you can get that gold. But I see that as I, I can't come up with any good reason in today's economy, if everything's exploding and we're to 1997 and the tech industry is booming, you could literally have bought any tech, tech stock and made tons of money. In 2002, it was a different ballgame. Yeah. And so my point is, why would you ever advise somebody to go into a small, local, you know, not one of the bigger ones that everybody's heard of groups in this economic environment? other than they're a significant risk taker and they're willing to risk it all um, against your advice, potentially. Is is it just purely greed why people do this? And number two, that's a tough, I'm rescinding that question. I don't want you to have to answer it because it'll put you in a bad position. But, but the second question is, what happens, I've seen, and I like your response, I've seen the road towards good dreams littered with OSOs or DSOs that never went anywhere where there were promises yeah. made and they never went anywhere. What happens in those cases, right? So, so yeah, so our industry, uh, the group practice space, the private equity-backed group practice space um, is has money sloshing around all over it, right? There, there, is, right. there are millionaires uh, that, we are, that we are helping create each month, right? We're probably doing two, three, four transactions a month and creating transformational wealth for people. And that money's coming from somewhere. And when you have that much money sloshing around in an industry, greed is going to show up too. And and there's also going to be some half-baked ideas from people who, the road of good intentions, right? They they think they can do it. They want to do it. Um, They're going to ask for their friends, uh, you know, practices to affiliate with them in hopes that they can make it. The reality is, Glenn, most don't. Building and scaling a group practice is hard. It's really hard. And today there are over 150 private equity backed out there, private equity backed groups out there uh, making a go at it. And that's what your group is up against. They have private funding, they have institutional knowledge, they have infrastructure, they have access to debt financing that your group does not. That's the competitive landscape that you will be up against. 
we have seen so many we we kind of we like to call them duct tape DSOs that are appearing out of thin air. Um, and we ask them, and they come to us and say, "Hey, we'd like to sell our business. What what, what is the business? We don't we're not really connected. We don't have any legal connection, but we're all buddies, and we have ten practices, and we believe that we we should get a higher multiple by going to market together than we do just going to market independently. Right. And, and, of course, the, and of course, we're on different practice management platforms. Oh, there's no <laughs> similarities. No similarities. And, 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 and oh, by the way, one 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 uh, owner's EBITDA is a million two, and another practice owner's EBITDA is 150,000. And, nice. and the 150,000 doctor has been told, come with us and we'll get you a 10x. So the whole thing is, is ruined from the start. And we just say that that is not going to be something the market is going to digest. You haven't created value there. And meanwhile, the doctors have spent all this energy, all this time, really trying to, to gussy up this duct tape DSO. And over that time, have turned the back on their golden goose. The practice has suffered a little bit. Right. The collections are down a little bit. And sadly, we've seen doctors destroy value just in the business that they're bringing to the table. I, there will be some of those businesses, unfortunately, or unfortunately, Glenn, that actually make it. And they're going to be the poster child of, of you too can do this. Yeah. Uh, but it is a hard and arduous path to get, path to, get to that point. Are, are you worried? Um, again, I'm just trying to hit, you know, running Orthopreneurs Group, I see all the questions. I get asked a question on an OSODSO literally almost every day by some doctor. Yeah. Are you concerned about, you know, I'm not going to mention names, but I've mentioned some along the way here today. Um, let's call them big 10, like accounting firms, right? Let's just take yeah, 10, sure. 10 orthodontic related support service organizations, right? Like bigger ones. Let's call the ones that are valued over, you know, three, $400 million. Okay. okay. Um, are you, are you um, rosy? Are you optimistic on their futures? Do you believe that you know, because one of the big knocks on them from people out there is this is all a Ponzi scheme. They're going to come tumbling down. You know, they're, they're thinking back to the old OCA, you know, yeah. other centers of America situation, which was a completely different ballgame. It was. Um, but but people are 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 almost I don't want to say wishing, but they're almost waiting for, for okay. the I, I told you so moment. I told you this was going to happen. And I just don't see speaking to enough people in private equity, enough people out there in financial world. I just don't see these things collapsing. What are your feelings on them? Yeah, I, I, I don't either, but let, let me let me tell you why. So here we are, uh, you know, let's say in the last two years, we've had some of the most challenging economic conditions uh, we've ever seen. We, we saw the business of dentistry broadly across all specialties shut down. Um, now, during those COVID years, uh, we actually saw orthodontics pick up Tremendously. We've seen yeah. adult orthodontics pick up tremendously. We've seen it in oral surgery, endodontics, and oral surgery, uh, and, and orthodontics. Orthodontics, oral surgery, and endodontics. Ortho's always been, believe it or not, recession resistant, and, and now it's proven to be pandemic proof. I would rather own an orthodontic practice at a restaurant today 10 times over. And that's just me. And I'm not the smart pool of capital up in New York City that's got, you know, all the wealthy friends looking to make investments in my private equity group. These private equity investors are smart. They do their homework. And what they're looking for is the most cash flow with the least amount of risk. 
And as orthodontics survives and thrives in a recession, survives and thrives in, in the pandemic world that we still kind of find ourselves in, survives and thrives even during the hybrid work world we find ourselves in, there's going to be increased demand for the orthodontic OSO, for the orthodontic DSO. It's going to continue. The other thing that OSOs have in their fate going in their favor is they're recruiting great orthodontists. This is the lifeblood. This is where I think the rubber meets the road in specialty DSOs. Because without an orthodontist or without someone trained to do the work, you got nothing. You got nothing. And the, the OSO who really masters the recruiting and the onboarding and the training and allowing them to earn equity inside the business and have a pathway to financial independence, those are the ones who are going to win this game. Um, Glenn, I will tell you, not everyone will make it. I can promise you that. But we've seen some really interesting things uh, during COVID where banks, and keep in mind, all these DSOs have leverage on them, and banks have a very sharp look at their balance sheet to make sure they're not overlevered. Banks wiped out some DSOs. They wiped them out. They did yep. not wipe out a single OSO. But there were some DSOs that went down, and, we, and they've been sold for parts, and, and they are in the rearview mirror. COVID was actually a really good thing from a, from a um, I would say it from a diligence perspective, if you're looking to partner with someone, because it got rid of a lot of the bad actors. It got rid of a lot of the bloated, debt-laden balance sheets. So now anyone who got through that is under a higher level of scrutiny from their lender and, and has a clear path for continued growth. So given those factors, I feel really good about the future of OSOs. Uh, I feel really good about, as you say, the big 10. I feel really good about the big 10. And I make, um, and by the way, to make it clear, I just chose 10 out of my head. There's probably a solid 15 to 20 is my guess at least. But sure. I just, just so nobody gets offended out there. I just said big 10. So I, I apologize. <laughs> I'll let you circulate the list, Glenn. Yeah, no, thank you. I'm good. <laughs> but so uh, going back to something I interrupted you on before, because you made a really good point that I, I dove down the rabbit hole. I want to. I want to talk about I, again. We could do this for days, and maybe we'll do another oh, one yeah. down the road. And you'll and you'll be at Orthopreneurs Summit, so people can uh, can definitely engage with you there later this year or call you sooner. But um, you know, going back to the seven x, twelve x, fourteen x, eight x, you know, the multiples on the practice. Okay, that's easy to understand. You know, you're making your EBIT is a million dollars. Um, you know, on average, we're going to pay you somewhere between five and a half and eight x on yep. average, depending upon. You know, a lot of factors that we're not going to dive into now, but but doesn't the company make a 5X2 or a 6X? Why do they make more money than I get, right? If I transact from the beginning at 6X and they're getting 12X from the next, right? They're worth a million, they're worth a hundred million dollars. They have a hundred million dollar EBITDA and they get $1.2 billion. Why am I only getting five or six X? That's a, a, a common question, right? Oh, okay. Okay. So let, let's let's go back to the share price for a minute. So we, Glenn, when you sell your business and you're rolling a million dollars of equity in, you're rolling it in a one dollar share price, right? Okay. And, and you you might have sold your business for seven times, and that and that's that's great, nice multiple year in, but you bought shares in another business. That business, you took your million dollars and bought a million dollars worth of shares for one dollar a piece. Well, that business had a value to it when you bought those shares. And that value likely was not the seven times that they bought your business for. It very well is 10 times the value of their collective EBITDA 
right? So they're looking at their valuation. They're going, we're worth 10 times our EBITDA. We buy Glenn's business for seven times. We get the arbitrage. Like We make some money on that because the difference between what we buy him at and what where we are valued, seven to 10, that's the lift that we get in our value. Um, but but we're not going to, that, that's the that's the value of what we have created by taking on the risk, by building the leadership team, by building the infrastructure, by building the website and the marketing and all that goes along with it, and having access to this affordable debt capital, uh, that's the value we bring to the equation. And then ultimately, when they sell for 12 times, let's say they grow sell for 12 times, you do get the appreciation from where you got in, if they valued it at 10 times, up to 12. That That's how you make your money in that scenario. That makes sense. Um, another thing that I see often uh, that this one honestly gets me very angry. Is, oh, good. Yeah, no, this, I mean, I'm sure I'm about to mention something that if people aren't involved in talking to a lot of doctors about this, they don't hear this very often, but it really gets me angry. And I'll bet it boils your blood too, is you get a doctor who's say 55 years old, uh, practicing 30 year, as you used in your words, you want to help them get their, sell their life's work. Yeah. And they say, yeah. I was speaking with my financial advisor, and so we decided I want to join an OSO or a DSO, um, but we decided to bring on uh, an associate two months ago or three (laughs) months ago, or I just made my junior associate who's been with me a year. They just started buying in as a partner to me. I see your head shaking. People are watching. You're nodding. This to me is so infuriating. And can, because of the EBITDA impact of bringing in an associate, I say to them in a nice way, you just cost yourself between one and a half and three million dollars. Correct. So do you want to explain that to people out there yes, so to, to, I don't explode yes, to, on camera? Yeah. So to, to, when, when every time ever you bring an associate into a business in the dental world, it's a money loser to get started. Let's just let's just own that. You're making an investment in someone unless you have so many starts and so many new patients where you can fill their column on day one, which I doubt you can. And I would argue that's still a money loser because you're giving away work that you could have been doing. It's it's, it's only if you are at full capacity and all of a sudden you have, a, you have two practices under one, but you just can't unlock it unless you hire an associate, which right. is not the case for anyone. So just we, I think we all agree Bring an associate in as a money loser. It's but it's I look at it as an investment in the future. We can look at it that way. Exactly. But your payback on an associate is not until year three, year four. It's a long road until you start to get a payback on that associate. So so if you bring in an associate and pay them two hundred thousand dollars minimum, because maybe that's what it costs in your region. You might want to multiple, change that in ortho. You might want to change yeah, that number. Yeah, f- fair enough. You, we, we, I want to. So let's call it. What do you want to call it, Glenn? Three hundred thousand. Just a simple number. Three hundred. Right. Great. So, um, you know, I, I could. I think we can all whip this number around. In your deal, when you made in your proverbial deal, when you made seven times, seven times three hundred is two point one million dollars. million. So if I'm a buyer and I'm looking at this going, oh, congratulations, you just brought an associate in, thinking in the back of my mind, that's really good for me because there's additional capacity and me as the new owner, I'll get all that upside. I see that's lovely, but your EBITDA is $300,000 less because you hired them and they have a three-year contract. I'd love to pay you for all that, but unfortunately, you're going to get $2.1 million less 
than you would have without that association. 7x times, times right? Just to yep. spell that again, if your EBITDA was $1.5 million without the associate, there you go. with the associate, it's $1.2 million. So right. when they pay you 7x on your, on your EBITDA, you've just lost $2.1 million. Correct. Now, here it can get a little worse, though. Oh, right? that, that's oh, yes, really bad. Right. Yeah. So that's really bad. And here's where it can get even worse. But you go, you know, I've loved this associate. Uh, not only did I bring them in, uh, equity had to be part of the deal. So I sold them 30 yeah. percent of the business. And I did so at a valuation equated to which is 80 percent of collections, let's say, yeah. which equates to like three times EBITDA. Oh, so 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 then you sell the business, you lose two point one million dollars on the doctor's compensation quotient, mm-hmm. and, and and they get an immediate windfall profit from where they bought it here and sold there, and all of this value is destroyed. It's it's I mean it. The poor doctor who spent his lifetime building this business sees three million dollars, four million dollars evaporate at the closing table. Well, it didn't evaporate; it went to the associate. Well, fair enough. Fair enough. It just no, but I'm saying, shifted. That's yeah. the infuriating part about it. You're a 55-year-old doc, a 45-year-old doc. You've worked hard to build your dream practice. You brought somebody in. You had some advisor who told you, you know, here's the partnership deal we're going to do. Yeah. And yeah. and they, ne- I had that conversation once where I had to get on the phone with somebody who was asking me questions. I said, again, I'm not a broker, but I got to break some news to you here, man. I said, um, Six months ago, you would have made four million dollars more than you're going to make right now. Yeah, and you could just it, it, the, the hard point. part is that they they the advisors who are, I don't know how they're incented, but the advisors don't understand how these practices are valued. I mean, Glenn, right. when we when we get the opportunity to to talk with someone, even even twelve months before they want to transact, we can actually create a ton of value. Right, it's it's those who come to me and say. All right, I'm ready to go. I, I got to get out. I'm ready to sell. I'm done. We look at it like, can you just give us six months to tighten some screws, to, to really window dress the asset? I mean, we will pay for our fee five times over if you just let us do these like six things. Um, and those who listen, oh my gosh, it, it, I will say this, it's, it's not always the easiest decisions. So we'll lay out, you know, if you, if you, terminated this person, if you let go this associate, because you're just shifting production from your column to his column, you can do this. Our job is to maximize the value and provide you the tools to do so. And I do tell our clients, it is, oh, you have to be selfish at the end of the road. And if you don't want to make those hard decisions, that's fine, but you need to know the financial impact of not making those decisions. Exactly. And that's why... Your point is so well stated because the thing I say till I'm blue in the face and orthodontists just don't want to hear it is I don't care how old you are. I don't care where you are in practice. If the idea of learning more about an OSO or DSO intrigues you a little bit, get a flipping evaluation now at at whatever stage you are in your career. It is not binding. You send numbers, you get it done. And then you say, you know what? A $7 million deal doesn't work for me. I want $14 million. Fantastic. Now you've got a roadmap you can create to say, where I am now gets me seven. I want 14 in two years. Fantastic. 
Here's what I yeah. need to do to my overhead. Here's what I need to do to my production. And you know what? I'm going to invest 100000 a year into marketing so I can get a million more in production a year because that's going to come back and pay, you know, another 300000 40000 in EBITDA later on, which is $3 million for the 300000 I spend. And yeah. nobody wants to listen to me, Kevin. They're like, oh, I'm not ready. I don't want to hear it. I'm like, you are a fool for not at least getting an evaluation. We, we all need all the information we can get to make great decisions, right? Exactly. I, 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 I want all the information I get about my business, about the, the competitive landscape, what's going on in the debt capital markets, what every buyer is doing, how they're thinking, whose pencil's down, who's ready to buy more, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You should be the same way about your business. The, the only thing I would add to your uh your suggestion there in, in one, get evaluation so you understand where you are today is to speak to a financial advisor so you understand how to achieve financial independence. Because what, right. what, what many folks come to us with is, I need to make $20 million on this trade. Why? Which is, why? <laughs> why? I mean, I, I'm not saying we can't get there, but help me understand why you need that. Because if I understand that, then then I can say, okay, then here's the three-year plan to get you there. Right. Or it, sometimes it's just my ego told me that's what I need. That's exactly. I hear well, all the time. I need an extra million dollars because what? You want to buy a tuna boat? What yeah. do you need? What do you need an extra million dollars? And, and if and if that's the case, fine, just own it. I just need to know because when you know uh, what you need to achieve financial independence, or if you're already there and you're playing with house money. The great thing about that is, you know, good, there's so many OSOs out there. Um, you can choose the right partner. You can choose the right trade. You can find the right one who has the, the right equity package for you and your plan that might not be the highest total enterprise value. And, right. and honestly, those are the best trades for us. Somebody who comes in and says, hey, I'm financially independent or I'm short three million bucks. I need to get that. When I hit this, this amount of money, all the debts paid off, kids' college is paid off, cars are paid off, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then I can do whatever I choose. And exactly. I say, let me tell you what we're going to do. We're going to go out to 15 buyers. We're going to pit them against one another. We're going to squeeze them for all their worth on enterprise value and allocation of equity. And then you get to, then you get to choose. And it makes me so happy when a client says, I'm not choosing the highest enterprise value. That's that's not what I'm in this for. I'm choosing the right partner, the right, right culture, the right leadership, the right equity package. Um, that person has so much more power in their decision-making and their negotiation. So th that's why it all comes back to get all the information you can before you head down this journey. Amen. And I appreciate that. And as we start winding this down, uh, just a couple more questions for you. Um, does Tusk have its own attorneys or do you recommend attorneys? Because I think what people don't realize is there's the person who helps broker the deal. And then there's a the person who does the legal contracts and M&A work, which is what this is, this is mergers and acquisitions, is very complicated. It's not something that you're, another thing I hear all the time from people are two things. Hey, my friend, my family member, my so-and-so is an attorney. They're going to act as my attorney. And I go, you're out of your mind. Yeah. Okay. This is one of the dumbest dumbest things you could ever do, no matter how brilliant of a trial attorney they are or a personal injury attorney, you're yep. a fool. And number two, Mike, I always say this, and maybe this is wrong. I'd love your feedback. If the attorney you're hiring to broker this deal has never done a deal with the OSO DSO you're about to, to negotiate with, 
they're going to blow your deal up. It's going to be destroyed because there's a there's going to be a clause or two or five in your 40 page deal that 40 every, page deal. <laughs> I mean, I, the, the I, legal documents are this high. I know, I'm talking the employment contract alone. Okay? OK, OK. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. So there's going to be five things in your employment contract alone that every single other doctor who's joined this organization has signed. They are non-negotiables on the private equity side. It's what they put in there. They're not going to change it. You're stuck with it. And almost all the time, in my opinion, they're worth signing that way because you're getting the keys to the, you know, the goose that lays the golden eggs, if you will, so to speak, mixed metaphor, sorry. But at the end of the day, your friend, your uncle, or the great MA attorney who closed, you know, um, Taco Bell's deal and doesn't understand the deal with MB2 or Smile Doctors or SOP or Orthopark, they're going to see these clauses and go, I would never, ever allow my client to sign these. And before you know it, your deal is blown up and done. The private equity group walks away and goes, we are not involved anymore. And your friend who who you trusted actually destroyed your deal. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's 100% accurate. Let, let, let me start by saying this. When you're when you're heading down this pathway, um, you're if you're if you're contemplating doing a deal on your own or thinking about doing with your brother-in-law, you are outgunned and outmanned. They do this all day, every day, and they are really good at what they do. Um, you do not have to engage us, but you certainly need to engage an advisor who knows these buyers knows how these deals are structured, knows how to defend your adjusted EBITDA through a quality of earnings exercise that every one of you is going to go through if you decide to do an OSO deal. The other thing is, I would strongly recommend you not work with a group that's connected to a law firm. We are not connected to a law firm. We have a sea of attorneys that we love to work with, and we like to recommend attorneys based on who the buyer is, specifically because what you said, Glenn, if they have experience in working with my orthos, OSP, we want to make sure our client is the great beneficiary of that because a lot of things happen. One, the attorney is going to spend less time on the documents. Keep in mind, attorneys are paid by the hour, so that's going to save you money. Two, they understand where the points of leverage and opportunities live in the documents and which sections are non-negotiable. These are standard. These are boilerplate. We can't touch these. And if you're not comfortable with this portion of the document, you can't do the deal, which saves you time. And they've got a relationship with the other side. And that does not mean they will that they will that they're going to be soft in any way. They are looking out for your best interest. Uh, but they will be able to save you time and money and, and really help translate all that legalese into English. The, these deals, they come along with, I mean, honestly, four to six inches of paperwork yeah. printed, stacked up on your desk. You need someone who knows the way of a DSO transaction. Otherwise, you're going to pay for them to learn how to do them. And you don't want to take on that cost. No, and it, it could be huge, huge. And that's that's why I say, please do not hire an attorney because it, I tell orthodontists, it's like saying, oh, um, Dr. Krieger, I don't need to come to you for my orthodontics. My cousin's brother, he's an endodontist, and he right. said he'll do my braces for me. I'm like, yeah. oh, okay. And what would you say to that individual? They deserve what they get, right? <laughs> yeah. and, and that's precisely <laughs> what happens. And so at the end of the day, 
Um, my my final two questions for you. One is the big one. The big question, if I were to hire Kevin Cumbus and Tusk Partners and I want to have you represent me, how do you get compensated? Yeah, great question. Um, so at, at Tusk, what we want to do, if, if you if you want to hire me, Glenn, I'm going to say I appreciate the opportunity, but the first thing I want to do is take a complimentary look at your adjusted EBITDA to make sure that we can educate you on the value of your business to ensure that we can meet or beat your, your valuation expectations. Because if we can't, there's no use in us even working together. So right. we do complimentary valuations all the time for folks that, that are considering uh, selling to a DSO. In the event you say, hey, this is a good fit. I like working with your team, Kevin. I think that there's an opportunity here. Your experience is vast. Let's go ahead and move forward with this. No problem. We sign the engagement agreement and move forward, and we're paid nothing. We are only paid when your transaction closes. So we don't make any money until you make any money, and it's it's a commission off of total enterprise value. I am happy to tell you it, we make our feedback multiple times. Um, for the value that we deliver, not just on the increase of enterprise value, uh, but really enabling you to exit without regret. You know, it's 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 hard enough to sell your life's work, but I, I want all of our clients to know that they've seen every potential buyer out there, so they know that we've left no rock left unturned, and they're doing what's best for their family, for their team, for their patients, and they go, well, I, I looked at the entire market, I know I got the top value. And I know what I'm doing, but what's, what's best for my family and my estate. Right on. Yeah, well said. Uh, if someone wants to reach out and learn more or get evaluation or start working with you, how do they get a hold of you? Yeah, great question, Glenn. Thanks for asking. Um, you can start with the website. There's uh, You can visit that at www.tusk-partners.com. Um, or you can reach us here uh, at 704 Six five four zero one five two. That's my cell phone. Feel free to call me directly, and we can. Uh, we're happy to, to to work with anybody who's heard this and wants to work more. And if you reach out to me, I'll certainly put put you together as well. Um, Great. And by the way, I can tell you're not from Silicon Valley because you are private equity because you didn't spell Tusk like P T U S Q U E. Very good. And for those who work with private equity enough or venture capital, you get the joke. You know, how do you spell Tusk with a W? Um, yeah. <laughs> anyway, thank you for being here today, Kevin. Um, it's really been enlightening. It allowed me like a therapy session to get a lot off my oh, chest. Goodness. Because, yeah. it, I, because again, if you, once you get on the other side of this, if you've really done your homework, if you've really learned a lot about it, and then you start talking to doctors, you realize, A, how uneducated most are on this subject, B, how opinionated the most uneducated are on this subject, and C, the huge seven-figure mistakes that orthodontists are making on a day-to-day basis yeah. by some of the most simple decisions they think are in the best interest of their practice, but are actually really hurting them long-term. Um, yeah, that, yeah that, that's, that's what gets me up in the morning. Like the, the, It doesn't have to be that way. And the more you you can inform your tribe and we can inform the our tribe, like let's just let's just not make these mistakes anymore. Let's go in eyes wide open. Let's learn and learn and learn and find the right partnership. Because I, I think so many people are, are trying to maximize the wrong thing in these transactions. And done right, it's a partnership. And done right, exactly. a, a strong partnership 
creates so much more wealth and opportunity um, than really trying to, to you know squeeze the other side for that for that last nickel and you know in a retrade at the finish line. It's just it's not worth it. Exactly. And and people will accuse Glenn Krieger of really being pushing OSOs. And what they misunderstand is I'm not pushing OSOs. I'm pushing you to become educated on OSOs because while they yeah. won't take, they're not going to ever be the majority of practices in the United States, or at least not in the next five or 10 years, there will be a significant portion of orthodontists that are part of OSOs, but there will always be a place for a private practitioner of good quality. The point is you owe it to yourselves to get educated on this because this model is not going away. It's going to make a lot of people really wealthy, Right. Um, For sure. And if you're wise about it, you could potentially be one of those people. And last but not least, you know, they always say put on your oxygen mask before you put on the oxygen masks of others. You want to help your patients. We all do. But we owe it to our families. That's who we owe it to first. And um, and the good news is this is not in conflict. They're not mutually exclusive. You can be really good with your family and support them and protect them financially and still take really good care of your patients. And so um, I want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart uh, for you being here today, Kevin. Can't wait to see you at Orthopreneur Summit. Uh, and hopefully anybody wants to reach out to me, have his contact info. If you reach out to me, I'll certainly connect you. And uh, just want to say thank you again from the bottom of my heart. Glenn, thanks for the opportunity. See you later this year at Orthopreneurs. Orlando, here we come.